you got a Bible, turn to Ezekiel 23, uh, 38. Excuse me. Ezekiel 38. Let's pray. Will you stand with me as we pray? Let's stand together. Call upon the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this, this time together. Uh, it's been a good morning, Lord, just to worship You, to hear a testimony of uh, Pastor Arch who's going around the world uh, teaching pastors, training up the church. We rejoice that Tony is back from Afghanistan. God, we, we're, our hearts are just encouraged by that and strengthened. We thank You that uh, April and the kids were able to, to be so patient. God, there are so many other uh, things to be grateful for and things to pray for. And we just want to continually lift all of this up to You, God. But now, Lord, we just want to turn to Your Word and we want to open up our hearts. We want Your Spirit to enlighten our eyes. Lord, uh, You know uh, how difficult this portion of Your Word is for us as mere men and women. Uh, but Lord, You've given us Your Spirit as a guide. And so we pray that You would now lead us through this portion of Your Word, difficult as it is. Help us to see clearly and to link uh, passages together that would help us get a clearer picture of what the future holds. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. The title of my message uh, today is the last in a series of messages. The series is The Word and the Newspaper, Part 4 Today, The Future of the Middle East. The Future of the Middle East. All eyes are on the Middle East. The last uh, 18 months have truly, truly been historic. The Arab Spring... 2011, oppressive dictators forced out, indicted, freedom at last in the Middle East. Not quite. New fragile democracies rose up, but have largely elected leaders that are more radical than the ones they threw out. The Arab Spring, as many had called it, is now descending into an Arab fall, and many worry will end as an Arab winter. Civil wars, terrorism, internal struggles are taking place. The nation of Libya, unstable, as evidenced by the death of U.S. Ambassador Stevens. The nation of Egypt, unstable, as evidenced by their selection of a Muslim Brotherhood presidential candidate, as evidenced by rockets that are now being fired across Egypt's north eastern border into Israel, along with rockets from Palestinians in Gaza. Also less frequent rockets coming from Lebanon into Israel. Syria, unstable, engaged in complete civil war. U.S. troops just this week have been deployed to Jordan to handle the throngs of Syrian refugees pouring across the border. Syria and the nation of Turkey are now close to war. And add to that Iran, a nation that most believe are just months away from acquiring a nuclear bomb. That's a mess. The Middle East is a mess. What does the future hold for the Middle East? What does the Bible have to say? about this portion of the world. Well, friends, the Bible is clear. I've got good news. The Bible is very clear. At any moment right now, you or I, believers in Jesus Christ, could be raptured by the Lord Jesus Christ. Read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and you will see the hope that all of us have in our hearts, that Jesus Christ will descend and will take up His church with her before the great day of trouble, before the great tribulation. And that rapture, the hope of the believer, can happen at any moment 
It is imminent. Are you ready? All that it takes is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you will be saved. If Christ were to return today, you would be with Him in paradise forever. And were you to, on this earth, physically die, you would immediately go and be in the presence of God forever. All it takes is faith in Christ. We know that the rapture is imminent. It can happen at any time. Nothing needs to take place prior to it. And we know that after the rapture occurs, the stage will be set for a final world ruler to come whom the Bible calls the Antichrist, the beast, the final king of the north. And the world will endure the great tribulation as spoken of in Revelation 6 through 19. But there is one other event that actually precedes the coming of Antichrist. There is one other event besides the rapture that might even come before the rapture. We're not sure according to Scripture. It isn't specified whether or not this event happens before or perhaps after the rapture. You and I might very well witness this event. Or perhaps we will be in heaven witnessing it from there. What event is this that I'm speaking of? It is the invasion of Gog and his allies in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I want to read with you the first portion of this prophecy. Ezekiel chapter 38 beginning in verse 1. Ezekiel, this is Ezekiel the prophet in exile in Babylon around the year 590, 585 B.C. And Ezekiel has a vision and this is what he writes. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around. I'll put hooks in your jaw and lead you out with all your army, horses, and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all its troops, the house of Tagarma from the far north and all its troops. Many people are with you. We'll stop there. As we've said throughout this series, um, national titles in the Old Testament. We're reading names here that we just don't know much about, right? We see the names Gog, who apparently is actually a leader, because it indicates that Gog is of the land of Magog. He's a prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. So Gog, whoever this figure is, and we have all these lands that we don't quite understand. Magog. Rosh, Meshech, Tubal. We have Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya. Some of those make a little more sense. Gomer and many others. We're not going to spend ample time defending why I'm placing them in the way that they are, but I want to once again show you the map that we looked at a few weeks back. Take a look at this map, and you can see in this map an indication of where these nations lined up in Bible days, in Old Testament times of Ezekiel. You had to the north there, uh, Magog was really modern-day Russia. Uh, to the northwest, you have Gomer, which is essentially uh, Eastern Europe. Some might say Germany. Tubal, uh, Meshech. You've got different Soviet bloc-type states. Uh, Turkey is Tagarma. Sudan is Kush. Libya is Put. They're, they're translated there in your New King James, but in the original they're not. And so you, you can see here an indication of the nations that Ezekiel speaks of. National titles have changed, but the territories of conflict remain the same. Led by Gog of Magog, which is to say led by a territory currently known to us as Russia, 
There will be a confederacy of nations that gather together to attack Israel. Modern uh, Bible scholars are compelled to argue that this presently would be an attack led by Russia. Not surprisingly, her confederacy includes Persia, modern-day Iran. Russia and Iran have a long and storied history of alliance together. And many other close allies, including former Soviet bloc nations in Southwest Asia and Eastern Europe, along with a few unsuspecting partners in North Africa. But perhaps what is most striking among this League of Nations, which Bible scholars believe will attack Israel prior to, note this, prior to the Great Tribulation, prior to the coming of Antichrist, It might even be prior to the rapture. We're just unsure about that. We're unclear about that. But this event in Ezekiel 38 and 39, which comes prior to the tribulation, prior to Antichrist, among its most noticeable features are the nations who are absent from it. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes, one interesting observation is that not a single Arab nation participates in the Ezekiel 38 and 39 invasion. We saw this quote two weeks ago. It served as a primer now for today's message. Now, in one sense, uh, this is very understandable. Very understandable. For if I were to ask the common man on the street in Jerusalem today, if I were to ask that common man on the street of Jerusalem, which nation wants to destroy you? He would probably answer Iran, Persia. A common man on the street in Jerusalem today, when asked the question, which of all the nations wishes to destroy you? He would answer Iran. Iran is unquestionably Israel's chief nemesis in modern terms which, of course, aligns neatly with Persia in Ezekiel 38. But if I were to press that man, and if I were to ask him, could you identify some more nations, some other nations, whom you look to and sense that they wish to destroy you? It would be exceedingly unlikely that that man on the street in Jerusalem would identify nations like Russia, Turkey, Sudan, Libya, Eastern Europe, or the Soviet states, the former Soviet states. It would be exceedingly unlikely that he would name any of these nations as his chief enemies, as those nations which are most focused on Israel's destruction. So on the one sense, we can understand Ezekiel 38 and 39. Persia, yes, Iran, we get that. On the other side, we say, wait a minute, these other nations, what's going on here? What's happening in the midst of this battle? Instead of the common man in Jerusalem giving nations like Russia and Turkey and Eastern Europe as answers, instead, we would expect him to name other nations. When pressed, besides Iran, which nation wants to destroy you? He would probably say... Syria. Syria wants to destroy me. Egypt. Egypt. They've been firing rockets on my schools in southern Israel. Hezbollah in Lebanon. Hezbollah wishes to destroy me. You can go ahead and bring up that next map. Hamas in Gaza on the western, southwestern corner of Israel, Hamas, they want to destroy me. The common man in Israel would name nations that all share borders with the modern state of Israel. Egypt, he would name. Syria, he would name. Lebanon, the Palestinians in Gaza. These would be the nations that you would expect him to be fearful of. And so when... Arnold Fruchtenbaum says 
that an interesting observation is that not a single Arab nation participates in the Ezekiel 38 and 39 invasion. That is no small matter. Today, today, were there to be a major multinational attack on Israel, we would be perfectly reasonable to assume that President Mohamed Morsi of Egypt would join the attack. We would be perfectly reasonable in assuming that terrorist organizations like Hamas in Gaza and Hezbollah in Lebanon would take part in the attack. We would be perfectly reasonable that even President Bashar al-Assad of Syria, embroiled in his own civil war, would do everything he could to join forces with an invasion against the Jews. When we compare current, the current state of geopolitical issues with what will transpire in Ezekiel 38 and 39, we're forced to conclude this on your outline. When we compare the current state of geopolitical issues with what will transpire in Ezekiel 38 and 39, we're forced to conclude that something great is likely to happen in the Middle East prior to the invasion of a Gog confederacy in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Write down the words prior to the invasion of a Russian-led confederacy. The rapture, any moment. But there remains a few geopolitical changes that I would argue are likely to occur before Ezekiel 38 can happen. Something must give to the current makeup of powerful antagonists that border Israel on every side. And my hope today is to try and explain what the future of the Middle East will look like as we move closer to what might be the end of days. In particular, we're answering the question, what will become of the nations that border Israel? What will become of the nations that border Israel? And the Bible has a lot to say about the peoples and the nations that share territorial borders with Israel. Our job today is to sift through these Scriptures to find out what relevance, if any, they have for us today. Anytime you're reading Bible prophecy, you must first look for that plain meaning of the text. But as you, but as you search deeper, you're also looking for ties and for clues between groups of passages which help give a fuller picture of what the prophets collectively saw. Now some people, in trying to draw these ties and pull in these clues, some Bible teachers go too far in making connections. Others don't go far enough. We're going to try to find that middle ground, that sweet spot. Where the text is clear, we'll be clear. Where the text is vague, we will speak more broadly while at the same time trying to put forth some good biblical speculation, some good biblical guesses as to what the prophets might be alluding to. We begin back where we started in Ezekiel 38, only this time we'll read a bit further into the passage. Turn again to Ezekiel 38. Let's see what it says. This is, this is still speaking of the Russian Gog-led invasion from the north into Israel in the future. It says, After many days you will be visited. In the latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword, that is Israel, and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely, the Israelites do. You will ascend, Gog, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You'll say, I'll go up against the land of unwalled villages. I'll go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bar nor gates. To take plunder, that's what Gog is intent on doing, to take plunder, to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places 
that are again inhabited and against a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods. Verse 14, Therefore, Son of Man, prophesy, Ezekiel, and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? You're going to notice some patterns here in this text. Namely, the Hebrew phrase, dwell safely. Safely, batak in Hebrew. Meaning to dwell confidently. To dwell securely. To be unsuspecting. To feel secure. To feel safe. To have an appearance of security about you. Gog will come upon Israel at a time in which she feels safe. Would you suppose, if I were to go out once again into the streets of Jerusalem today and ask the common man on the street, after asking, after having the conversation about who are your chief enemies, and he says to me, the Iranians are my chief enemies, they're building a nuclear bomb against me. Who else are your enemies? Well, Hamas, Hezbollah, Egypt, Syria are my enemies. And they neighbor. They're everywhere around me. They fire rockets into my nation daily. Do you suppose, after having that conversation with the common man in Jerusalem, and I asked him the question, do you feel safe in Israel? Do you suppose he would answer yes? I don't. Do you feel secure? I don't think the answer would be in the affirmative. Do you feel safe? Do you feel confident? Are you fearful? Yeah, actually I'm fearful. I don't know what's going to happen in the, in the coming months. I don't know what's going to happen in the coming days. I don't know what our nation's going to do against Iran. I, I don't know what the Americans are going to do to combat my chief enemy. I, I'm not dwelling safely. I'm in the land, but I don't feel confident right now. There are dozens of passages in the Old Testament that speak of betak, of safety. But of all those passages, one, passages, one passage in particular really grabbed my attention in my studies on this matter. It is also a portion of Ezekiel, and it is especially noteworthy for our studies today. Look at Ezekiel 28, verses 24 to 26. This is prior now, prior to where we were in chapter 38. But in Ezekiel 28, the prophet, after having, just to, just to tee up this passage, the prophet has just pronounced judgment. He has just pronounced condemnation on many nations, particularly on nations that bordered Israel. Nations like modern-day Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, and the Gaza Strip, Palestinians. These are the modern-day names by which we know them. In, Ezekiel, in the early part of Ezekiel 28 and prior, he was speaking of those territories as they were in that day. And this is what he says in verse 24. And there shall no longer, after God vanquishes his enemies, after God brings judgment upon Israel's neighbors, and there shall no longer be a pricking briar or a painful thorn for the house of Israel from among all who are around them, who despise them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, when I've gathered the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they're scattered, and when I'm hallowed in them in the sight of the Gentiles, then they will dwell in their own land, which I gave my servant Jacob, and they will dwell safely there. They'll build houses. They'll plant vineyards. Yes, they will dwell securely when I execute judgments on all those around them who despise them, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God. Dwell safely. Dwell securely. Betak. 
The prophet Ezekiel is drawing an explicit tie, a clear connection between the notion of Israel's security and the reality that her neighbors have been judged. Let me say that again. Ezekiel is drawing an explicit tie, a clear connection between the notion of Israel's security and the reality that her neighbors have been judged who have despised her. In other words, to put it differently on your outline, in Ezekiel 28, Israel cannot, cannot dwell safely until her neighbors are judged. That's what it says in the text. That's what Ezekiel prophesied. And so when we come to Ezekiel 38, some ten chapters later, and we see a prophecy of a coming day in Israel's history, a coming invasion, we can say that Gog and his non-Arab allies will not attack until Israel is dwelling safely. It said that in the text. Go back and read chapter 38. It said that Gog will come on a day when Israel is dwelling securely, dwelling safely. That means that Gog won't attack until Israel has that sense of betak. Therefore, therefore, our conclusion, before Gog attacks, it may well be that Israel's neighbors are significantly neutralized. Write down the word neutralized. Here's where I will freely admit we are getting into a matter of biblical speculation. But we're letting the Scriptures inform that conclusion. Are we not? Ezekiel's been quite clear. In Ezekiel 28, you're not going to dwell securely, Israel, until your neighbors who are literally around you are judged. And then fast forward ten chapters later to Ezekiel 38. God will not attack you, Israel, until you dwell securely. Therefore, the conclude, a reasonable conclusion from its own, from within the prophecy of Ezekiel is to conclude that before this future invasion by Gog, it may well be, I think it likely is, the fact that Israel's neighbors are going to be significantly neutralized. This conclusion makes good sense given our current geopolitical framework. For what else, what else could explain non-participation by Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, and and the Palestinians in a war against Israel? What else could explain their reluctance to attack? But the most important question is, does the Bible speak to the weakening of Israel's immediate neighbors in the last days? Does the Bible speak to the weakening, to the neutralization of Israel's immediate neighbors in the last days? My answer to that is a a definitive yes. A definitive yes. And that was what so much of your homework was about, for those of you that did it. It was no small order by any stretch of imagination. I assigned a lot of scriptures for you to read and to consider and to chart out what's happening to Israel's neighbors, the blessings, the consequences, what's happening to their land, and consequently what's happening to Israel, the blessings and the consequences. And so we went through that process. And I want to give you four items to conclude that study today, which I believe demonstrate that Israel's immediate neighbors will in fact be weakened as we continue forward in human history. There are four reasons that I would argue for this. Four reasons. The Old Testament prophets foresaw that Israel's territorial neighbors will, number one, experience great natural disasters and epidemics. They'll experience great natural disasters and epidemics a very cursory study of some of the texts that I gave you will demonstrate this time and time again. You've got so many of Israel's neighbors 
uh, that, that are mentioned in these uh, portions of Scripture that I assigned. I want to look briefly at a few of them. You'll notice I've given you examples below each point here. You see there Moab, Philistia, Egypt, Edom, and Tyre. I've put in parentheses the nations, the modern nations, to whom these peoples correspond. Now you might stop right there and say, well, Neil, how do you know, though, uh, that those territories are also going to be these nations in the future? The answer is we don't know definitively. It could be, again, that, that geopolitics changes and that nations will change and we might be substituting a different nation in later. But if you turn to Daniel 11 and you read about uh, the Antichrist, for instance, in Daniel 11, it says that as he attacks, in Daniel 11, as the future world leader attacks and comes through the glorious land, it indicates that some peoples escape. It says the peoples of Moab escape. The people of Edom escape. And the prominent people of Ammon escape. This is just kind of off the cuff, off your notes here. Read the end of Daniel 11. And it it says there that in Antichrist's attempt to overthrow much of the Middle East, three peoples escape. Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Well, in our day and age, those people don't exist anymore. They've been assimilated into nations. And so, for us to make sense of a prophecy like Daniel 11, we need to look forward into human history and say, where did those peoples go? Where is Moab, Edom, and Ammon? And we look, and on our modern territorial map, we find that this almost perfectly lines up with the nation of Jordan. We can get into reasons as to why Jordan will briefly escape Antichrist, but not for today. So I put in parentheses here the nations to whom these peoples correspond. The Bible wants us to draw that connection. In Moab, Moab related to central Jordan. Philistia related to what we would know as the Gaza Strip. Egypt, self-explanatory. Edom is South Jordan. Tyre is also Lebanon. And as you go through these verses that I've listed here, you will find time and again emphasis on the wasted land, on a desolate land, on God judging the land so that the green grass is no more and there's nothing but drought, there's nothing but famine, there's nothing but disaster in all of these regions time and time and time again. And it is interesting, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, Uh, with with Jack, who's floated on the Dead Sea, as have I. When you look to the east and you see from the Dead Sea the land of ancient Moab, central Jordan, and the land of Edom to the south, south Jordan, you see nothing. You see exactly what the Bible said would be there. A wasteland. Desolate. The Old Testament prophets foresaw that Israel's territorial neighbors will experience great natural disasters and epidemics of great proportion. That will continue. The famine that you read among the nations surrounding Israel is grounded in the prophecies of the Old Testament. And they will continue until the return of Jesus Christ. Number two... The Old Testament prophets foresaw that Israel's territorial neighbors will fall prey to civil war and foreign invasion. To civil war and foreign invasion. Turn over to Isaiah. You're in Ezekiel. Go back to two books. Go back two books to the book of Isaiah, chapter 19. What a fascinating portion of Scripture. Historically rooted, yes. But you tell me if this looks like modern day Egypt. Isaiah 19, beginning in verse 1. Isaiah 19, beginning in verse 1. The burden against Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at His presence. The heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. Verse 2, I will set Egyptians against Egyptians. Everyone will fight against his brother and everyone 
against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. The spirit of Egypt will fail in its midst. I'll destroy their counsel. They'll consult the idols and the charmers, the mediums and the sorcerers. Verse 4, And the Egyptians, and to the Egyptians, I will give into the hand of a cruel master and a fierce king who will rule over them, says the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Now I could show you, I could point to a lot of historical circumstances in which this prophecy was fulfilled, but you tell me, does that look like 21st century Egypt to you? It does to me. What's happening in Egypt today? Civil war? Almost. Not quite. It's going to be, I would expect. They've elected a cruel master in Muhammad Morsi. The people are fighting one another. The military is fighting the civilians. It's fascinating how history seems to repeat itself. Old Testament prophets foresaw that Israel's territorial neighbors will fall prey to civil war and foreign invasion. If you turn also to Zephaniah chapter 2, you'll see Moab and Ammon being overcome by Israel. By Israel, mark that. If you look at uh, the nation of Syria in Isaiah 17, you will find that it is by the hand of the children of Israel, by the hand of the children of Israel, that Syria will fall. Well, guess what? That has not happened historically. Not since the day of Isaiah it hasn't. And so some of these prophecies are yet to be fulfilled. Now some of you might argue, well, but Pastor Neil, that's, that's all going to happen in the future uh, messianic kingdom of Jesus Christ. And to that I would say absolutely these things are, are going to take place there as well. But if history uh, is any lesson to us, we've seen time and time again how it repeats itself. How what is said back 3,000 years ago of the Egyptians in Isaiah is now repeating itself in 21st century days. How much more so might it repeat in the days leading up to the Great Tribulation? I would expect it to continue to repeat. I would expect foreign invasion to mark, be a hallmark upon these nations. Lebanon today is a total puppet of Iran. Syria is being filled with Russian troops left and right. The United States is all in the nation of Jordan. Egypt is being influenced by foreign nations. Is this, is this any surprise? Third, the Old Testament prophets foresaw that Israel's territorial neighbors will, number three, be intimidated and overcome by Israel's strength and power. Be intimidated and overcome by Israel's strength and power. I skipped ahead on some of these. As I mentioned, Syria in Isaiah 17. Uh, and also Egypt in uh, Isaiah 19. Oh, you're still in Isaiah 19. Take a look again. Isaiah 19, look at verse 17. Isaiah 19, look at verse 17. It says, And the land of Judah, that is Israel, will be a terror to Egypt. Everyone who makes mention of it will be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which He has determined against it. Do you know that you're living in a day where this prophecy is finally being fulfilled? This is not true of Israel. After, after Isaiah, all the way, this prophecy was not fulfilled all the way until the 20th century, when Egypt went against Israel on multiple occasions in the late 1960s and the early 1970s, in the Six-Day War and in the Yom Kippur War. And what is the testimony of the Egyptians after having gone through those experiences? Any Egyptian will tell you, I am scared to death of the Israeli. Something happened. And the Israeli army just totally overcame us. The Arab nations that surrounded her, 300 million strong people. Israel, a dozen million. And yet she overcame incredible odds, so much so that, uh, that the Egyptians today look back upon those wars, look back upon those recent conflicts, and will testify how fearful they were 
of God's chosen people. History repeats itself. It's interesting, too, on number three there, if you look at the bottom, if you look at the... uh, The mention there, also in number two, of Ammon and of Tyre. Uh, there, there's multiple scriptures there that speak of the fact that there, these nations, that God will bring the captives back. God will bring the captives back. In other words, something's going to happen in these lands, in these territories, in which God uses, whether by the hand of Israel or by foreign influence, takes these nations captive. And it will only be in the latter days that these captives are brought back. And so, the testimony of Scripture is that, the, that Israel's territorial neighbors will be intimidated and overcome by Israel's strength and her power. Fourth and finally, because they're intimidated and because they will lose battles and wars to Israel, we can rightly say that, number four, they will lose territory, her neighbors will, and be assimilated by Israel. Now on this, some of you might be very mm, suspect. Let me show you, though, uh, the land as God has promised it uh, to Israel. You can see here a map. It's a large uh, map of the Middle East. Black and white. Sorry about that. Going old school here. Uh, On the left-hand side of that territory is Cairo. All the way to the right, it leads up to Baghdad in the Euphrates River. I didn't... I should have listed it. I apologize. But you can write down Genesis 15. Genesis 15. Read the end of it. You will see the land promised to Israel. Numbers 34. You will see the land promised to Israel. Ezekiel 47. You will find the boundaries of the land promised to to Israel, and also the end of Obadiah. The end of Obadiah. So in Genesis 15, Numbers 34, Ezekiel 47, and at the end of Obadiah, you will see a collective promise from God to Israel of what her territory will one day be. Well, we are not, the, we are not at that day. We are not at that day. It is quite clear that Israel will not uh, recover this promise of extensive lands until after Jesus is seated on His millennial throne. But it should not surprise us at all that Israel will in fact recover more territory in the future so as to secure her borders and have that sense of betak, of dwelling safely. Israel's borders have already been rapidly changing even since her return to the land in 1948. Now, this will be hard to see, but I want to bring it up anyway. In brown, pay attention to the color brown. In the top left there is kind of an orangey brown. I guess they're all kind of orangey brown. What you see here is a timeline of the territory owned and occupied by Israel since 1948. In the top left, it actually goes back to 1922 in the Balfour Declaration. She had a massive expanse of land that was dedicated to her, but there was great dispute. There was great fight, infighting over that land. It wasn't until 1970, uh, 1948 that she became a nation. In 1973, the second one over from the top, that's after the Yom Kippur War. Notice how large she is. That, that bottom left portion of her territory includes all the Sinai Peninsula. Bet you never saw... I bet your modern-day maps don't show that as the territory of Israel. And yet she voluntarily gave that back, such that by 1979, bottom left, Camp David Accords, she gave back, Israel gave back, for, for in, in the name of peace, land that she occupied, that was demilitarized zones, that was used, why was it used, by the way? That was used so that she might have betak to dwell safely. But she gave it back because the world community demanded it of her. And she continued to shrink by 1982, the 2000 Oslo Accords, and finally in 2005, unilaterally withdrawing from the Gaza Strip. Today she is at one of her most fragile points in her history. And she's given a lot of her land away. 
Now, to think in your minds, these territory changes have all come in the last 50, 60, 70 years? How much more so might we expect it to change in the future? I think it is crazy, crazy to suppose uh, that the acquiring of God's promised land to Israel, uh, that, that, that what God has promised Israel in the future will not slowly but surely be taken up in our day and age. Not fully. I don't expect the full boundaries of her territories as promised in Genesis 15 to be fulfilled prior to the coming of Christ. I don't, I don't expect that. No one would. But I do expect there to be future territorial changes. Because I would say to you today, the common man on the street in Jerusalem, if you were to ask him, do you dwell safely today? He would say, what are you talking about? Of course I don't feel safe. When our president uh, got behind an initiative to force Israel to forsake the West Bank and to go back to 1967 borderlines, what was the response of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel? What did he say to the U.S. president as our president and many nations rallied around the concept of returning to the 1967 borders? The response of Benjamin Netanyahu was, we can't do that. We won't be safe. If we give up that land, we've already given up so much. If we give up those territories, we won't be safe. That was his response. To think that Israeli territory might contract, might expand again, if only perhaps in the form of even demilitarized zones, is not out of the question in our day and age. In fact, the first text we looked at today alludes to it. Turn again to Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 38. Look again at verse 8. And now we'll read it highlighting a few different parts. Verse 8 of chapter 38 in Ezekiel. After many days, you will be visited. In the latter years, you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend, Gog. You will ascend, verse 9, coming like a storm, covering the land with a cloud, you and all your troops, many peoples with you, to take plunder, to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods. We've already read this portion of Scripture, but we're highlighting something different this time. This time, we're highlighting the fact that Ezekiel, the prophet, suggests that the places that were once wastelands will again be inhabited. What places? Perhaps places like the mountains of Israel, Ezekiel writes, south of Damascus. You and I know them as the Golan Heights. Places like the waste places, Ezekiel writes in verse 12. Reminds me of Edom and Moab, east of the Dead Sea. southeast of the West Bank. These lands, according to Ezekiel's prophecy, are now repopulated. But the peoples of these regions, and they are repopulated today. You look at the Golan Heights, there's a, a fragment, but they're there, of population. You look to the southwest, southeast excuse me, of the West Bank, there's some population there, not a lot, but people are returning to those lands as, way, as much as they are desolate. But the peoples of these regions do not dwell safely. In fact, residents of these regions, especially that of the Golan Heights, will testify that they're among the most treacherous places to live in all the world. No one in Israel 
wants to live in the Golan Heights. And I mean no one. Few in their right mind would desire to live there. Yet Ezekiel 38 envisions a day in which these great lands will not only be inhabited, but inhabited in peace. In Batak. And if this peace will come prior to the invasion of Gog, prior to the Great Tribulation. Finally, consider the end of Gog. We close in this portion of Ezekiel. Consider the end of Gog. You're in chapter 38. Look at chapter 39 and look at verse 11. As we come to 39 verse 11, we come to the end of the battle. You can read through the invasion and see how God protects Israel miraculously. But as we come to Ezekiel 39, we come to the burial, the burial of Gog and his allies. Verse 11 of chapter 39. It will come to pass in that day that I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel. Note those words. The valley of those who pass by east of the sea, that is the Dead Sea, and it will obstruct travelers because they will be because they will bury Gog and all his multitude. Therefore they will call it the, va- the valley of Hammon Gog. For seven months the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. They will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land, bury the bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. And at the end of seven months they'll make a search and the search party will pass through the land. And when anyone sees a man's bones, he shall set up a marker by it so the barriers have buried it in the valley of Ham and Gog. The latter parts there, uh, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, speak in our modern age of, of some sort of... Uh, um, I was talking with uh, Dustin about this. We, we speculated too, perhaps chemical warfare, some sort of biological warfare, uh, where the ground needs to be cleansed. Everything needs to be buried at the end of this failed invasion. Of Israel. But besides the speculation toward the bottom half of this portion of Scripture, look at the top half. Where is Gog buried? I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel. And those who pass by, east of the sea, that is the Dead Sea, it will obstruct travelers because they will bury Gog there. Why is this significant? When Ezekiel wrote these words, when Ezekiel wrote these words, around 580 B.C., he was a captive. He was a slave in Babylon. Israel had been sacked by Nebuchadnezzar. Her territories had been captured. Her people overrun. The Jews were decimated. Yet Ezekiel from captivity envisioned a day in which Israel would thwart an attack by Gog. And when the attackers were defeated, Ezekiel foresaw their burial, in verse 11, in a valley east of the sea. And notice those three words. There in Israel. The areas east of the Dead Sea are the territories of Moab and Ammon, central and southern Jordan. They were occupied by Israel only at one point, one point in her history, under King Solomon. But after King Solomon, Israel's territorial control in that region started to wane. And before Ezekiel was sent to Babylon, Israel had long since lost these lands. To this day, to this day, Israel has never controlled the territory east of the sea, in the land of Moab and Ammon. But Ezekiel tells us, he tells us of a day in which Israel would once again regain her prominence in the land. A day in which her territories would increase yet again. And all of this would occur prior to the coming of the Great Tribulation. All of this would occur prior to the invasion of Gog and his evil forces. Friends, I believe, based on reasonable uh, scriptural inferences, that the geopolitical situation in the Middle East will be changing in the future. I believe that Israel is not dwelling safely, contrary to some. She's in the land, but she does not have Batak. 
And Ezekiel, and what Ezekiel has prophesied in Ezekiel 28 and 38, like so many other prophetic portions of Scripture, it suggests a day that is yet to come. When Gog attacks Israel, there is good reason why Israel's neighbors will not participate in the attack. It will be because they are neutralized. It will be because in accordance with Ezekiel 28, Israel's neighbors, those around her, those who despise her, will have been judged and have been judged down through the centuries. It will be the Arab nations that surround her today will not join in on the attack of Ezekiel 38 because God will have judged them through famine, through drought, through civil war, through foreign invasion, or perhaps even losing future wars to Israel in that very region. And yet still, still, God has a plan for these neighboring countries. As you perhaps did your homework, you will read time and time again that there are very few of these nations, with the exception of Edom, that God will forever turn His back upon. Instead, He has a plan for each one of these tribes, each one of these peoples, who have raised their fist at Him, who have despised His people. And so we close again in the book of Isaiah, chapter 19. Would you turn there as we close in a final word from the Scriptures? We don't leave the Middle East in despair. We don't say, well, Israel's neighbors are going to be neutralized. They're going to be made impotent. And that's the end of their story. No, that's, that's not necessarily the case. God yet has a plan, even for those nations who have come against His people. And in Isaiah 19, verse 23, we see that plan. Look at verse 21. Then the Lord will be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. And He will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt. He'll strike it for sure but He'll also heal it. They will return to the Lord, and He will be entreated by them and heal them. And in that day, verse 23, there will be a highway from Egypt all the way to Assyria. And the Assyrian will come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. And in that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Friends, as we consider the future of the Middle East, uh, I believe it's quite bleak for the nations that surround Israel. I believe it's quite bleak for the nations which ally themselves with Gog of Magog to the north. But in the end, God has a desire. He has a deep longing to take these nations that have forever despised Him and bring them into right relationship with Him again. That can only come when these nations look up and see Jesus Christ as their Savior, acknowledging Him and throwing off all the other gods that have deceived them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for... uh, fruitful study in Your Word. We're trying to put the pieces together, God. We're in, a, we're in a crazy world, but we know You're in control. We see great turmoil all around, but we know You have a plan. And God, uh, as we have tried to make sense of some of the portions of Your Word that speak to the future of Israel's neighbors, we pray that, uh, that You will have guided this study that You will use it further to, to, to push us and to enliven our hearts toward deeper study of Your prophetic Word. God, help us not just to desire the milk of the Word, but also the meat of the Word, the difficult things. We can have disagreements, 
Lord, you know we're imperfect. We are men and women simply trying to understand your word, but we just pray, God, that your spirit would especially guide us and that as Jesus chastised the religious leaders for not knowing the signs of the times, we pray that as he looks upon us, he would see that we're earnestly seeking to know. We're earnestly keeping our lamps filled with oil that we might be ready when Jesus Christ returns. In his name we pray. Amen.